0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. I want to welcome everybody today. I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming here. Uh, This is a Capitol Hill briefing, our first of the year, entitled A New Agenda for the 115th Congress. Uh, Before we begin, if you're watching via the live stream um, and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet appropriate questions to us at hashtag CatoEvents. The agenda for Much of the first 100 days of the 115th seems to be largely written. Uh, First, Obamacare repeal and a replace. We'll see about that. Um, Reconciliation 1 is underway, perhaps tax reform, then Reconciliation 2, moving into April, and somewhere in there there will be considerable regulatory reform, we all hope. And with much of this, Cato scholars are in accord. But it's clear that the differences between what the President-elect has promised and what Congress has promised are often at odds. I'm thinking about trade and some civil liberty issues here in particular. But first, we'd like to see Congress um, regain its position as the sole lawmaking body of the government. And further, uh, those members who have espoused free market, limited government, and responsible foreign policy views should stay the course and remain committed to those principles. Um, any agenda that is adopted in the next couple of years should keep those guideposts in mind. And to help steer you all in the right direction, we've assembled this panel to outline some important initiatives to keep in mind as this Congress gets underway. So first up will be Vanessa Brown Calder, who is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, where she focuses on social welfare, housing, and urban policy. Previously Calder worked as a graduate fellow in welfare studies, where she analyzed the low-income housing tax credit and Chicago's housing voucher program. She has published articles for the Daily Signal and the Kennedy School Review, and much of her prior experience is in environmental consulting for the energy industry, urban planning for local municipalities, and international development for a humanitarian organization. Calder holds a master's degree in public policy from Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Jim Harper is a senior fellow at the the Cato Institute, working to adopt law and policy to the information age in areas such as privacy, cybersecurity, telecommunications, intellectual property, counterterrorism, government transparency, and digital currency. A former counsel to committees in both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, he also served as global policy counsel for the Bitcoin Foundation. A founding member of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Data, Privacy, and Integrity Advisory Committee. Harper co-edited the book, Terrorizing Ourselves, How U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. He is also the author of Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. His work, too, has appeared in all the major newspapers, as well as in the Administrative Law Review, Minnesota Law Review, and Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly. Harper holds a JD from the University of California, Hastings College of Law. Then, Michael F. Cannon is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Canada has been described as Obamacare's single most relentless antagonist and Obamacare's fiercest critic. And I think we'd all like to see this particular Congress take those away from him <laughs> and, in fact, be worse than he was. <laughs> uh, Canada is the co editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform, and co author of Healthy Competition What's Holding Back Healthcare, and How to Free It. Also, a Senate veteran, Cannon has appeared on all the major networks, and his articles have been featured in a bewildering variety of periodicals and journals. Cannon holds an MA in economics and a JM in law and economics from George Mason University, and he is a member of the Board of Advisors of Harvard Health Policy Review. And last but not least, Christopher Preble is the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He is the author of The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, less prosperous and less free. And most recently, he edited our Foreign Policy Choices, Rethinking America's Global Role. If you want a copy of this, they're on the table out in front there. Uh, Preble too has published articles in all the major publications and is a frequent guest on television and radio. In addition to his work at Cato, Preble teaches the US Foreign Policy Elective at the University of California Washington Center. And he is a former commissioned officer in the US Navy and he holds a PhD in history from Temple University. So each of our speakers will take about roughly 10 minutes and we'll endeavor to leave time for questions at the end, but for now let's welcome Vanessa Brown Calder. Let's welcome with
1: applause. Thank you. That makes me feel good. Um, so. Today, I'm going to be speaking about housing affordability, which I'm very eager to speak to each of you about. Um, The question of the day is, is this a local problem or is this a federal problem? In other words, is this your problem? That's really what we want to answer. So I'm excited to share some of my most recent analysis with each of you, which hopefully will shed a little bit of light on this topic. So if you were to ask, the Department of Housing and Urban Development this question, they would certainly say it is a federal problem, and yes, it is your problem. The old maxim I think holds true here, which is that if you have a hammer, then everything starts to look like a nail. That seems to be applicable. So to that end, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or as we'll call it for the rest of the presentation, HUD, spends about $50 billion annually on trying to make more housing, more affordable to more people. And this is actually part of their mission statement. They say that they want to provide affordable housing for all. This is, um, they want to provide quality affordable housing for all. And some of their main programs, tenant-based rental assistance and project-based rental assistance, seek to address this very thing. So how is HUD doing at providing affordable housing? This is a question that we should always ask. This is an important question, right? Um, if they're spending $50 billion annually on this. Well, here we have a graph. So by HUD's own measure, not necessarily so well. So that top line is HUD's estimates. And on the y-axis, you have the percentage of households in America that are cost burdened. And this shows about the past 15 years, but this trend is basically true, Um, even if you go back farther, which is that it's kind of uh, increasing. You have an upward slope there with a little decrease after the financial crisis. That's because everybody's, the value in their homes fell considerably. It's not necessarily anything to do with HUD's programs or initiatives. Um, And if you look at households that are actually very cost burdened, so these are households that are spending 50% or more of their income on housing, that trend is also true, that pattern still holds, which is that, if anything, it looks as though things are getting less and less affordable over time. More and more people are severely cost burdened And if you look at the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard and MIT, their report, they say that actually this number is projected to increase by 11% before 2025. So the outlook, the outlook is just really, really not great. So the question for all of you then is, is this because we haven't spent enough money on affordable housing? Um, Is it because we just haven't made the right policy tweaks to the existing programs? Maybe they're just not targeted well enough, for instance. Well, let me propose an alternative sort of explanation here. Many of you have probably seen a map like this before. This is going to be found in your local zoning code. This is the District of Columbia's zoning map. These zoning codes and zoning maps will tell you all sorts of things about development. They will tell you what type of development you can build, where you can build it, if you can build a restaurant or a house on your property. They'll tell you how many floors you can build, so how many levels, um, the density. They'll tell you the design even. They will tell you what architectural features are required or prohibited. They'll tell you what the quality of the building should be or the quality of the materials. They really can get into the minutia. And in fact, they also include an approval process which you will have to go through if you try to do anything to your property, build anything anywhere, or remodel your property. If any of you have tried to remodel something in DC, you are well acquainted with this sort of approval process, which is lengthy. So what does this translate into? How does zoning regulation work in practice? Well, the academic literature actually has a lot to say about that. Um, simple economics tells us that it constrains housing supply, and there's, there are quite a few studies which also support this. Um, it leads to an inflexible housing market, meaning it crushes innovative, low-cost housing solutions. Some of these include micro-housing and tiny homes. It also adds time and uncertainty, which translates into, of course, money. So you're, gonna, you're going to end up spending more money if your approval process is much longer um, and your developer or your general contractor is involved over a longer period of time. And more subtly, it encourages overconsumption of housing and, of course, if you're consuming more housing than you want to and then you're probably spending more for it. But what does this lead to, all of these, the simple economics of sort of zoning and land use regulation? What does this lead to practically speaking? Well, studies also have a lot to say about that. In Manhattan, land use regulations were estimated to amount to about a 50% increase in the cost of housing, which, as you all know, is considerable. Um, in California, there was a study done that looked at housing regulation. And for each addi- additional housing regulation, there's about a 4.5% increase, increase in the cost of housing. And you never just have one regulation. So, um, you know, you multiply that by 10 regulations, all of a sudden you're up to 45%. But I think one of the saddest aspects, actually, of this land use and zoning regulation is sort of a byproduct of the cost of housing. And that is that you have Workers, especially low-income workers, who are immobilized in these job deserts. In other words, the cost of housing is too high in places where they could be the most economically productive, and so they don't move there. So they actually can't meet their potential. They can't do the things that they want to do with their time and with their resources. And that hurts all of us. It hurts them, but it hurts all of us by decreasing aggregate U.S. GDP growth. So one of the questions that I wanted to answer is, am I getting a little carried away here? Is it possible that maybe zoning regulations are not such a problem and I'm sort of overemphasizing their impact? So I took some data, which was generously provided by Harvard University, um, on the total court cases with land use in a given year. And each of those plus signs is a state. And as you can see, in about the 1970s, those numbers start to creep up or really fan out. It's really not so much of a creep as a fan. And you can see that there's just more and more cases, court cases with land use regulations in them every year. And those court cases are actually a great proxy for the level of restrictiveness in land use regulation in any given state. But I wondered, does this hold at the state level? Is every state subject to sort of this increase in regulatory creep. So I looked at that. So here we have Alabama. Um, I just pulled the first state, (laughs) alphabetically. Um, And you can see that the same trend actually holds. So in 1970 onward, you see that upward sloping line where the total land use court cases is increasing over time. And here's Alaska. Um, One of those lines this is just basically two metrics to represent the same thing. One line is representing zoning, and the other is land use. And there's overlap between them. We can get into it if you're interested. But they're basically just measuring the regulatory creep that's happening at the state level. So back we go to our question, which is, will any of that $50 billion or the additional $2 billion that HUD has requested in fiscal year 2017 help? Will it solve or address affordability issues? my answer to that would be that I would suggest that um, it will not actually target any of those underlying fundamental state and locally based problems and in fact it seems to be making them somewhat worse or encouraging them so I looked at the most restrictively regulated states, and I just simply compare those to the least restrictively regulated states and see how much federal money are they receiving from HUD and other programs which target affordable housing. And it looks like they're receiving about double when it comes to housing vouchers. This same trend holds when you look at public housing money, And it's not as if the states in the most restrictively regulated category are poorer states. Actually, in fact, some of those states, or a lot of them, are northeastern states. And so these are places that, I mean, we're not talking about the deep south here. We're not talking about inner cities. We're talking about really kind of beautiful suburban communities that are receiving a lot of money. And this is scaled per capita. And if you look at cities, it only becomes more dramatic. So there we have District of Columbia. District of Columbia, I realize it's not a city, but for all purposes, it's sort of similar. Um, They are receiving about seven, or we are receiving about 7.5 times the federal money as compared with the least restrictively regulated states. So what is the takeaway here? Um, Takeaways rather than solutions, I think. Cities and states are in some cases regulating out of existence affordable housing. This is a problem because it's not something that the federal government can address no matter how much money you pour into. You have underlying dysfunction. That should concern all of us. So the action item for each of us today is to take that knowledge and to distribute it, I think. Um, Transmit it to the relevant people in your district the next time that they call and ask for more affordable housing money, tell them that they actually, it is within their purview and control to do something about affordable housing today and that it's possible for them to do that free, actually. I mean, what could be better than that? In the meantime, I would also suggest that we just please check HUD and the different initiatives that HUD is running around doing. And if you're, you know, involved with or associated with the House Financial Services or Senate Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committees, that you also look to be sure that we don't have additional harebrained ideas which are actually encouraging and subsidizing even these problems that are happening at the local level. And I think do less is probably the easiest solution that you're going to hear today. So, thank you for listening.
2: Thank you all for your interest in what we at Cato have to share. Uh, The topic I'm going to cover today uh, is transparency. Uh, It's a bipartisan (laughs) and pan-ideological matter of agreement that transparency is good. Uh, I've been doing some work on it for a few years now. I actually started just ahead of the uh, first inauguration of President Obama. He campaigned on transparency and uh, worked fairly hard in the early years to deliver it, but essentially failed. And part of the reason is because although we agree on transparency, nobody really knows exactly what it is, exactly how to deliver it. Uh, there are a couple of papers on your chairs that, uh, that are products of my thinking about that, and they might interest you. Uh, though at risk of boring you as well. Um, but in brief, what you need for transparency, and this is the theory of it, I'll get into the nuts and bolts in a minute, uh, is a consistent flow of information and then a community of users that can, that can put that information to work. Uh, across the society, we're seeing those flows being put to work. I like to use Amazon.com as a book business as a, as a clear example of how uh, good data and users turn into an entirely new business model that we didn't know about prior to Amazon. The reason why Amazon could be created is because there was good data about books that could be put into a website and used to create uh, a sales platform for books. Amazon.com would not exist if there was not good data about books uh, to precede it. That's how to think about government transparency is that you need the data and one of the uh, dimensions of our society that is probably lagging uh, most greatly behind the others here in this internet age is government and governance. Data about what's happening in government is very hard to come by. And so I have, I've been emphasizing for a few years now the importance of getting data out. There are details in these papers. I, 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 I uh, try to uh, categorize the data practices that would allow for transparency and then actually at one point graded the quality of data in certain, certain, essential, uh, on certain essential subjects like uh, votes in Congress, appropriations, spending, uh, and, and all, the, uh, all the dimensions that make up the, the essence of government. The grades were pretty bad. Uh, they have improved, but quite slowly, I think, over, over years since that study came out. So I'm going to emphasize a couple of things that are going on uh, at, the, at the current time uh, for you to watch for. One is, uh, is crucial. Implementation of the Data Act. The Data Act is the Digital Accountability and Transparency Act. It was passed in 2014 uh, with bipartisan support. And again, this is a bipartisan issue. Uh, Speaker Boehner has been a supporter of transparency, and now Speaker Ryan is. Uh, Denny Haster, uh, rather uh, uh, Steny Hoyer, in particular, um, on the Democrat side, has been a stalwart uh, defender of uh, and, and advocate for transparency. The Data Act essentially requires the executive branch to publish spending information in machine-readable formats. Uh, that's a lot of work to do. So, there's no discounting the, the the effort that's going into that implementation of the Act. Uh, but across the government, there are multiple versions of what money is being spent. Sometimes it's for accounting purposes, sometimes it's for uh, 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 other oversight purposes. Trying to get a uniform data system that reflects spending is what the Data Act calls for. That's happening now. Uh, it's not something the Trump administration has said anything about that I know of. As a candidate, Hillary Clinton said she would implement the Data Act. Uh, but hopefully the, the Trump administration continues what President Obama's administration started. Uh, in the House you can expect to see legislation that will expand and build on the Data Act uh, in particular legislation that makes uh, perfectly clear that each entity of government, each unit of government, should be uniquely identified uh, creating what, what you would think of as a machine-readable organization chart. Right now Government-wide, there is no single representation of what the units of government are, right? There are agencies, bureaus, programs, projects, but a variety of different versions of how they exist in the world. That makes your job pretty hard when it comes to oversight because programs are slippery. Where the money came from and where it went is hard to track. Uh, at what, actual, what actual programs and projects exist and who's in charge of them is hard to track. Uh, you see mistakes come out, of, uh, come out of the government because of this. There was a, a document issued during the Obama administration that claimed the existence of, of an agency that, or a, a small bureau that no longer existed. Uh, there needs to be a machine-readable government organization chart. That's a sort of trellis onto which you can build a lot of things, particularly oversight. But the, the House and Senate can use that kind of data, that data structure, to do much a much better, better job of transparency yourselves. Uh, there has been slow and steady progress I think in the House with producing data about what's happening here. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when uh, PDF documents first, be, first became available. As an intern uh, too long ago to even speak of, we would run to the document office if we wanted a copy of a bill and get paper copies. That was the only thing out there. But in 1995 PDF versions of bills came out. Well the time is, is long past to move to modern versions of these bills. Uh, extensible Markup Language is uh, it's like HTML, the the the, the uh, protocol that that runs the World Wide Web. XML versions of bills are currently published, but it's what I call thin XML. It's got publishing instructions in it, but it doesn't reflect the data about what the bill talks about. Uh, at Cato, we have a project called Deep Bills, where we actually add a richer markup to bills so that computers can identify what agencies are being referred to when there's spending, that is an authorization of appropriations or an appropriation, and the existing law that's being referred to in all the different forms. That enables people using computers to much more quickly learn what's in the bills that Congress has issued. Um, Now, it's not just bills, of course, but lots of activities. And some of the progress includes docs.house.gov, which is a repository of information about what the House does. Um, But a lot more could be there. Committee votes are some of the low-hanging fruit, I think. Uh, right now, committees each their own fiefdom don't publish in uniform formats what has, what has happened in the, in the most essential respect, the votes on legislation to report it to the House floor. Um, I think that the uh, appropriations bills in particular are, are low-hanging fruit for House and Senate transparency. Right now, there's no uh, way using computers to find out how much spending is in an appropriations bill and where it goes. With a machine-readable organization chart, that is, unique codes that identify all the units of, of government, and uh, uh, appropriations bills that use these codes, ordinary people out in the land, thanks to information services, apps, and websites, will be able to figure out where money is being proposed uh, for spending. Uh, that's going to be an important improvement in transparency, and that's something that uh, that the House should move forward. Uh, other... Uh, DIMENSIONS OF TRANSPARENCY INCLUDE IDEAS THAT ARE FOUND IN uh, THE READABLE LEGISLATION ACT. IF YOU'VE PICKED UP A BILL AND YOU PROBABLY had HAVE AND TRIED TO READ IT, YOU KNOW THAT THE, that the HOUSE AND SENATE USE CUT AND BITE AMENDMENTS. THAT IS, IT SAYS IN uh, SECTION 42A OF TITLE 3, uh, CHANGE um, ONE WORD TO ANOTHER. NOBODY KNOWS WHAT THAT MEANS. BUT THE READABLE LEGISLATION ACT PROPOSED THAT CONGRESS SHOULD ADOPT A, me- a METHODOLOGY THAT'S USED IN MANY STATES where the new law would be written out in, in, in toto in the bill. You don't have to wait for it to be reported and get a Ramseyer at the back of the of the House uh, report. You could just actually read the bill. For years now people have been demanding that they read the bill. That members of Congress read the bill. What they really want is transparency. They want not only members of Congress but they want a general sense that people out in the land understand what's happening here. I think that's going to happen with data transparency. Uh, you in Congress can push the, the administration to implement the Data Act, and there's lots to do here yourselves on making the actions of Congress more transparent. Thanks very much.
3: Uh, thank you all for coming. My name is Michael Cannon, as Peter mentioned. I'm uh, the Director of Health Policy Studies at Cato. Uh, I'd uh, like to start out with a little joke. Vanessa wanted me to, I told her this joke, she wanted me to uh, spring this on all of you. Uh, And the joke goes like this, what do uh, Republicans and Christian scientists have in common? Wait for it. They don't do healthcare. (laughs) It's a pity that Republicans uh, uh, don't uh, do healthcare uh, because there's a lot to fix between uh, the Medicare program, which is a bit of a disaster, Uh, The Veterans Health Administration, uh, Congress desperately needs to privatize the Veterans Health Administration. Uh, As Chris Preble and I have written about, if they did that the right way, uh, they would, uh, Congress would make soldiers safer, not just veterans, but soldiers safer. We get a better U.S. foreign policy, we get get better health care for veterans. Uh, Veterans would be wealthier and we'd actually get better health care for everyone else as well. Uh, Congress needs to reform the Food and Drug Administration. There are a lot of things Congress needs to be working on, Republicans need to be working on. But they have taken an interest in Obamacare. So we've got that. We We can work with that. And little wonder they've taken an interest in Obamacare. Uh, Premiums in the Obamacare exchanges have doubled, and I don't just mean in isolated pockets like uh, President Trump means when he says that, President-elect Trump means when he says that. Uh, I mean, since 2013, if you look at the average increases year to year, the average uh, premiums in the individual market have doubled as a result of Obamacare. Uh, Medicaid enrollments through the uh, Medicaid expansion uh, Obamacare's Medicaid expansion are much higher than projected, per enrollee costs are much higher than projected, 50 percent higher. And you put those two together, and that program is costing a lot more than, uh, than people believed it would. Uh, there's a lot less choice for Obamacare enrollees. One of the things that was supposed to happen with Obamacare is people would have all of these wonderful options to choose from in the health insurance exchanges. And now one in six enrollees, one-third of counties nationwide and seven states have only one carrier participating in the Obamacare exchange. And this is the worst part, I think, of Obamacare is that the coverage is less secure. Another two million people uh, had their plans canceled uh, in 2017 and had to switch plans. When that happens. They lose access to the doctors in the hospitals that they had been using and they find, they're finding that the networks are narrower and so they're not able to stay in those hospitals. They have less choice of uh, doctors in hospitals than they did before. Uh, Obamacare has not, as it turns out, uh, ended discrimination against the sick. In fact, there is a, a, a recent study by two scholars at Harvard University, one at the University of uh, Texas at Austin that illustri- illustrates that Obamacare really created a race to the bottom in terms of insurance quality, where insurers are not only discriminating against the sick, but Obamacare is encouraging them to discriminate against the sick, penalizing them if they don't and rewarding them if they do. What these uh, uh, what these, the, the Harvard UT study found is that under Obamacare, neither healthy nor sick uh, enrollees can adequately insure against multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, infertility, and a bunch of other expensive illnesses. So as it turns out, Obamacare does not prevent insurance companies from denying you coverage, from dropping your coverage, or watering down your coverage. It does not prevent insurers from limiting your coverage or discriminating against the sick. Again, one in six enrollees one thir- in one, thir- uh, one in six enrollees in the Obamacare exchanges are just one insurance company exit away from having the exchange collapse entirely and not having insurance options. Now, unfortunately, I don't think that even though Republicans have taken an interest in Obamacare, I don't think they've really taken enough of an interest in healthcare generally, because if you look at some of their plans for repealing and replacing it, you will notice that they are basically Obamacare lite. That's either because they don't repeal all of Obamacare or because they would repeal it and then replace it with basically a Republican version of all the same stuff that's in Obamacare. So some uh, have proposed keeping the pre-existing conditions provisions in Obamacare uh, and repealing everything else, the mandates and the subsidies, uh, but keeping the uh, the pre-existing conditions stuff and other regulations. Well, the problem there is that uh, if you do that, insurance markets will collapse. And if they don't collapse, you will get even higher premiums at an even faster race to the bottom than we're seeing in Obamacare right now, where coverage gets even thinner and you're paying even more for it. Uh, Other Republicans have uh, proposed basically preserving the basic architecture of Obamacare, claiming to repeal it, but then replacing it with all of the same elements. And what are those elements? Well, Obamacare, as economists like to say, is a three-legged stool between the regulations requiring insurance companies to cover everybody uh, uh, at the same – premium, everyone of a given age at the same premium, regardless of their health status the individual individual mandate that then requires healthy people to pay those inflated premiums because their premiums go up uh, or pay a penalty to the government, and subsidies to help low-income people pay for the mandatory coverage they otherwise would not be able to afford, the mandatory and overpriced coverage they would otherwise not be able to afford. Well, if you look at some of the Republican replace plans, they have all of those same features. Some of them Uh, Let's see, the the centerpiece of most of these Republican plans is a health insurance tax credit. A refundable health insurance tax credit, I should say. The refundable part is important. That means that most of what we're talking about here is not tax relief, it's spending. Obamacare's refundable tax credits are about 94 percent government outlays and only about 6 percent tax relief. So the government's just writing checks to insurance companies and they're not really cutting anyone's taxes. These are just straight subsidies and Republicans, apparently a lot of Republicans. They think that that is such an attractive feature of Obamacare, they want to retain it. The tax credits, although the Republican plans don't have an explicit individual mandate, the tax credits, the health insurance tax credits, double as an individual mandate because they create an an identical financial incentive. Either, under under both an individual mandate and a health insurance tax credit, either you buy a government-designed health insurance plan or you pay more money to the IRS. It doesn't really matter if you call it a mandate penalty or if it's just a higher income tax liability or, or what have you. You're basically uh, reproducing uh, or, or, or you're, you're creating the functional equivalent of an individual mandate when you have a health insurance tax credit. In fact, some Republicans want to keep Obamacare's taxes so they can keep Obamacare's tax credits and all the spending that comes along with them. And then there's the continuous coverage mandate. If you're paying any attention to the Republican replace plans, You've heard people talk about this continuous coverage mandate. That's how we're going to make sure that people are able to have continuous coverage. Well, it turns out that this continuous coverage mandate is not a mandate at all. It's just a price control. It's one of the three or a scheme of price controls. It's one of the uh, the third of the three legs of this stool. The continuous coverage mandate tells insurance companies that if someone has continuous coverage and they come to enroll in your plan, you have to charge them the same premium you would charge anyone else of a given age. That means you can't underwrite them. That is essentially what Obamacare does, only Obamacare also applies that to people who were previously uninsured. And what that does is it increases premiums for everybody in all plans and creates the same race to the bottom that we see in Obamacare, where insurance companies have to compete to make their products unattractive to the sick because if they don't, they'll go out of business. And some of them have. We've seen a lot of exits uh, from the exchanges uh, resulting from that. So, under these Republican plans, we're going to get the same high premiums and race to the bottom that we see in Obamacare right now. In fact, the race to the bottom might be even faster under the Republican plans. However, there is a better way to go about this. Uh, Congress can repeal all of Obamacare's regulations and subsidies and mandates with just 51 votes in the Senate. And there's really no question about this. Anyone who says that that, that the Senate cannot remove all of Obamacare's regulations and mandates and subsidies, through the special budget reconciliation process process where you only need 51 votes in the Senate, is uh, uninformed or trying to mislead you. There is no question that the Senate can do this. The only question is whether they're interested in doing it. They can also replace Obamacare with just 51 votes. They can do it by expanding tax-free health savings accounts, as President-elect Trump pledged to do during the campaign. Now, lots of proposals expand health savings accounts. I'm not just talking, I, I don't think that that uh, just expanding health savings accounts can uh, replace Obamacare, though. The Paul Ryan plan, uh, Tom Price's plan, Rand Paul is introducing uh, an Obamacare replacement plan, and uh, Senator Jeff Flake and Congressman Dave Bratt have introduced an HSA expansion bill. All of these bills would expand health savings accounts, but I don't think that they count as a replacement unless they. Uh, unless they do something else. To count as comprehensive reform and really replace Obamacare, Congress needs to expand HSAs in a way that allows Congress to reform the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance. This is the reason that most Americans with private insurance have health insurance through an employer. And I think the way to go about this, the the way that Congress can do this is with a a reform that I call large health savings accounts. And basically what large HSAs would do is they would reform the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance, equalize the tax treatment of health care across workers and across saving versus direct payment versus third-party payment for health care, drive health care prices downward, make access to health care more secure, and deliver a larger effective tax cut than the Reagan and Bush tax cuts combined. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. But reform the exclusion. How would large agencies reform the exclusion? Well, the exclusion right now, the way it works is, your employer gets a tax, or you, I should say, get, there's a tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance in that any money that your employer spends on your health insurance is, not, is compensation to you, but it's not subject to income or payroll taxes. Now you, think this, you would think this sounds like a tax break, but in fact, the way employers get that money is by taking it out of your salary. So this graph shows the average amount, uh, or the amount uh, the employers spend on the average family plan. It's almost 13,000 dollars. That's 13,000 dollars. They're taking out of workers' salaries to, buy, uh, to choose your, the workers' health plans and, and, and pay for the lion's share of that plan. Call me crazy, but when a feature of the tax code separates workers from $13,000 of their earnings and lets someone else control those earnings and control their choice of health plan, that doesn't sound like a tax cut to me. That sounds like a tax. And I think this is the main problem with the tax exclusion. It separates workers from their earnings. It also drives up the prices for health insurance because that's not doesn't seem like your money. It seems like your employer's money. You demand more coverage. When you have more coverage, you demand more medical care, and that drives up, all drives up the prices for medical care and health insurance. But I think really the worst part of the exclusion is that that the coverage is lousy. It rewards or uh, offers a tax preference for a a type of coverage that disappears when you get sick and can't work anymore. And so this feature of the tax code actually fuels the problem of pre-existing conditions, problem of pre-existing conditions, pours gasoline on that fire. By putting all sorts of people in a situation where they get sick and then either they can't work anymore or the plant closes or they get divorced or they turn 18 or they turn... 65, and all of a sudden they have uh, an expensive illness and cannot buy, uh, afford private insurance. Large HSAs fix that problem uh, by equalizing, first of all, uh, by expanding uh, health savings account contribution limits and then changing the exclusion from an exclusion from employer paid premiums to an exclusion for HSA contributions. That allows workers to take that $13,000. Uh, it, w- it would Uh, practically force employers to give that to workers. Workers would get that $13,000. Workers would be able to put that into their large health savings account and then be able to purchase health insurance either from their employer or more secure coverage on the individual market, coverage that does not disappear when their employment status changes. Um, And to give, and because uh, large HSAs would transfer that $13,000 to workers, it's it's a large effective tax cut. In fact, that $13,000 across all workers in a given year amounts to $700 billion. That's how much of workers' earnings, this feature of the tax code, lets employers control. You would shift that $700 billion to the people who earned it. Let them put it in their large health savings accounts. Let them choose whether and what type of health insurance to buy. Not only are they going to select more secure health insurance, so we're dealing with the problem of pre-existing conditions. But they're going to be spending that money like it's their own. As the economists say, they're going to be cost conscious at every margin. They're going to put downward pressure on prices, and which is the most important thing we can do to bring healthcare within the reach of people who cannot afford it today. To give you an idea of the sorts of price reductions that we're going to, that that we'll be able to achieve. CalPERS, which administers health benefits for California State employees conducted an experiment. Safeway conducted a similar experiments with, with their employees where they said for hip and knee replacements, for example, this is how much we're going to pay. We're going to pay $30,000 toward hip and knee replacements, and anything more than that, the enrollee, the patient has to pay themselves. What happened when they made patients cost-conscious just at that margin right there? In the high-cost California hospitals, the prices for hip and knee replacements fell by $16,000. On average, $16,000 is more than the federal poverty level, okay? You give someone $16,000, they're not poor anymore. That is a dramatic reduction in prices. We've all heard about ridiculous pricing in emergency rooms, and we get these ridiculous explanations of benefits, and it's all funny money, and we don't know why, we don't have a market mechanism, Uh, we don't have market prices and price competition in healthcare. It's because the consumer is not cost-conscious, and reforming the tax code, uh, w- reforming health care with large HSAs will make them cost-conscious in a way that brings health care within the reach of, uh, of, of people who can't afford it today. So reforming health care this way not only would replace Obamacare uh, and by moving in the other direction instead of uh, just putting Obamacare light in place, it's consistent with uh, President-elect Trump's campaign pledge to repeal Obamacare and replace it with HSAs. It's consistent with Mr. Trump's demand that Congress act now uh, because Congress – not only can uh, large HSAs pass the Senate with just 51 votes, but the Senate could do it in the same bill in which they repeal Obamacare. Uh, and on top of that, it is uh, – large HSAs would deliver a larger tax cut than the Reagan and Bush tax cuts combined, and yet still be revenue and budget neutral. And if you want to know how I can make that claim, I'm happy to discuss it during Q&A. But uh, to sum up, if Republicans start taking health care seriously, they'll be able to replace Obamacare with better, more affordable, and more secure health care. But if they don't start taking health care more seriously than they have in the past, they're going to end up giving Obamacare immortality instead of repealing it. Thanks.
4: Great. Thank you for coming out today. Um, it's an honor to be here to share uh, some of the work of my colleagues, my uh, fellow scholars at Cato on defense and foreign policy issues. Um, <clears throat> the main just of my remarks today, there's a, there's a wide and uh, growing gap between what uh, officials in Washington demand of the military and the resources made available to execute its missions. Uh, U.S. military spending today is about 36 percent higher in real terms than in 2000. 36 percent higher in real terms than in 2000. So remember that when you hear people say uh, that military spending has been slashed or has never been lower. Uh, Nevertheless, most people here in Washington believe that we should be spending far more. They disagree on where to find the money. Uh, To oversimplify, grossly, uh, Democrats would find the money by raising taxes. Republicans would cut other spending and uh, divert the proceeds to the military. I think most members. Uh, I think would be content with uh, increasing the deficit, uh, though few will come out and say it. The pay for it later approach, after all, does allow them to avoid spelling out any painful trade-offs, that is, things that they would take away from people that they like. Uh, If any of you in the audience disagree or think I'm being too cynical, please correct me. Not right now. Uh, There is a different approach. Uh, Cato scholars take seriously the need for rethinking our ends not merely the means. Rethinking our ends. The Defense Department is misnamed. If we were serious about defending the United States, we would have a different military with very different missions. Uh, It would be smaller, uh, based in the United States or U.S. territories. It would deploy to places as needed, not attempt to be in all places all the time. Uh, a different grand strategy, what we and others call restraint, would involve the U.S. military in fewer wars. And a restraint-oriented military, while still the finest in the world by a wide margin, uh, would be far less costly than our current one. Uh, We can afford to rethink our foreign policy because and reorient our military, because the policy that we've uh, pursued for many decades isn't necessary to defend vital U.S. interests, and it will become increasingly difficult to sustain given low public support for it. The American people have consistently questioned the need for a vast forward deployed military focused on defending other countries, most of whom can and should defend themselves. Of course, President-elect during the course of his campaign hinted at some necessary adjustments to U.S. foreign policy, he questioned the wisdom of nation-building, of regime change wars followed by nation-building, he doubted that the benefits of America's alliances always outweigh the costs, and he spoke to the American people who have grown uh, tired of costly overseas adventures that don't deliver on the promise of greater security. Such positions were uh, unpopular, to say the least, with a broad swath of the foreign policy establishment, including, of course, a number of former senior officials in Republican administrations. Challenging the elite consensus is difficult, uh, but Donald Trump did it anyway, and he was rewarded in November, or at least it didn't cost him, uh, as best we can tell. But even if President Trump does not carry through on his promises to focus on America first. And even if he doesn't revisit our global military posture, he can still fulfill his pledge to make the Department of Defense operate more efficiently. Uh, This will not be easy either. It will require him and especially members of Congress to take on entrenched interests that defend the status quo. These common sense reforms enjoy broad support within the think tank community, but they have been stymied in Congress because they will impose near-term costs and risks on a few political constituencies. So briefly, I just want to mention four reforms that can and should be implemented, even if the United States doesn't revisit its overarching grand strategy that is designed to discourage—designed to discourage other countries from defending themselves and their interests. Four ideas. One, the Pentagon is carrying excess overhead. That means bases. We have too many bases. The military simply has more land than it needs here in the United States. And that's true even if the military grows in the next few years. However, selling the idea that closing military bases is good for the military and therefore the right thing to do won't work politically. Our most senior generals and admirals have repeatedly requested permission to close unneeded bases, and Congress has steadfastly refused these requests. Such intransigence means, quite simply, the military is spending money on things that it doesn't need, and that is taking away from its other priorities. It's a clear case where parochialism, uh, among some members, is undermining U.S. security. Ultimately, if the Trump administration is serious about reforming the way the military does business and takes on this task of closing unneeded bases, it must convince people here on Capitol Hill that the communities facing the prospect of a base closure can mitigate the painful near-term economic effects. I've done extensive research on what has happened at a number of military bases around the country after closure. Indeed, it's a mistake to think of them, base closures, as closures. In most cases, bases are opened to the communities who are able to transform them to non-military uses. Some have done so quite quickly. Everyone who is serious about reducing excess overhead in the Department of Defense should familiarize themselves with these cases. I'm happy to share my findings with you. Anyone who asks, you can also consult with the Pentagon's Office of Economic Adjustment, which also monitors this work. Two. Two. Base closures will help the Pentagon tackle another vexing problem, a civilian workforce that has grown far too large relative to the number of men and women serving on active duty. The Pentagon now employs some 55 civilians for every 100 uniformed personnel, the highest ratio ever. And the civilian contractor workforce is nearly as large. President-elect Trump should peer under that rock, too. Reforming the military's pay and benefits system would reap long-term savings and bring a woefully out-of-date system into the 21st century. The Military Compensation and Retirement Modernization Commission noted that today's young people have different expectations than earlier generations accustomed to long-term employment and private sector pensions. The commission mostly focused on value for service members, but exploding costs, exploding costs up 76% per service member in inflation-adjusted dollars between 1998 and 2014. Those should also be taken into account. As a joint letter signed by scholars from 10 different think tanks explained, if we fail to curb the growth in military compensation costs, they will continue to grow as the defense budget shrinks, crowding out funds needed for training, modernization, and for the replacement of worn-out equipment, unquote. Fourth, and lastly, if President-elect Trump is serious about reforming procurement, as he has hinted with his critical comments toward Boeing's Air Force One and Lockheed Martin's F-35, among others, he will find a number of allies here in Washington. No one disputes the Pentagon spends a lot of money on hardware. I believe we spend too much. I'm not alone. uh, But ultimately, that's a judgment call. However, everyone, those who want to spend more or the same or less, would all prefer to get more bang for the bucks. Alas. No one agrees on how to get there. As already noted, Congress often forces the Pentagon to spend money on things it doesn't need or want. Then, on top of that, the military's requirements process is a recipe for rampant cost growth. In an era of defense dominance, when the small, smart, and many is increasingly capable of thwarting, or even in some cases defeating, the exquisite and few, the United States must get serious about extracting more useful military power at less cost. Let me conclude by briefly returning to where I began, of the need to revisit our strategic objectives, our ends. In a recent essay, Frank Hoffman at the National Defense University made a case for strategic discipline. The United States needs to make better choices, he said, and there is a better equilibrium point between rampant retrenchment and unbridled hegemonic primacy borrowing from Ian Bremmer's cold-blooded interest-driven approach designed to maximize the return on the taxpayer's investment, which Bremmer calls Moneyball, Hoffman assigns to the National Security Council the responsibility to assess risks and define the liabilities involved in each contingency instead of simply assuming that our leadership and credibility are at stake in every global flashpoint." In short, he concludes the United States needs to be more discriminate in judging its core interests and more disciplined in applying force and resources to secure them. I agree, and my colleagues agree, which is why we collaborated on this short volume. Peter mentioned it. I think those of you who had a chance to pick it up, if you haven't, we have extra copies or just ask, Our Foreign Policy Choices, Rethinking American Global Role. That is what uh, my colleagues and I talk about in this book. Uh, And I thank you all again for coming out today and for giving me an opportunity to share our research. Thank you.